and welcome to this episode of the VFX Show. I'm Mike Seymour and I'm joined by Matt and Matt. So uh, let me first introduce or rather welcome back Matt Leonard. How are you, Matt? I'm doing very well. Thank you for uh, having me back on. Having a great time. So for those, yes, you've not been on for a little while, but uh, tell people where you are in the world at the moment, Matt, just so they can place you. Obviously, I'm talking to you from Sydney, but where are you? I am in uh, Vancouver at the moment, working out of the uh, Vancouver ILM office, but currently sat in my basement. So that's why <laughs> I physically am. <laughs> the, uh, the soundproof booth that, uh, that uh, is uh, excellent. And Matt Wallen, of course. Matt, how are you? Uh, I'm really good. I'm in my not very soundproof, uh, under the stairs, Harry Potter style hideout at my home <laughs> in Richmond, Virginia. Excellent. Well, nice, nice uh, cross-continental, cross-Pacific, uh, trans-Pacific uh, chat going on. So we're going to talk about The Lion King, um, which has been remade after being remade, after being a stage show, after being remade, after having a sequel that was a sequel to a sequel. Um, so I guess my first question is um, just a simple one. Did you enjoy it? Before we do anything else, like let's leave out the context, the history and the technology, just... Did you enjoy the film? And I'm, I'm going to have a lot of trouble with you both being Matt, but I'll try and um, uh, I'll call Matt Wallen Matt and I'll call you uh, Matt Leonard, Matt Leonard. Is that all right, Matt? That's perfect, of course it is. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So Matt Leonard, as you're, you've returned to the show, what did you actually think of the film just as a standalone film? Well, I actually saw it last night, so it's super fresh in my mind. And I guess... Just a blanket statement, I would say that I didn't overly like it. Uh, there's a number of reasons mm. why. Uh, I, I love the visuals, I love the technology, but I came out of the theatre feeling like it wasn't the ride I was hoping for. Okay. Matt, how are you? Um, I just saw it today, actually, and um, I'm probably a bit of a... a I think a bit of a movie unicorn in that I've never seen uh, the cartoon version <laughs> and I've never seen the musical. Uh, so it was the first time I'd actually seen The Lion King, although I will say that um, it's such an incredibly uh, formulaic story. As I was watching it, I knew what was going to happen um, and I felt as if I'd seen it before. <laughs> but that being said, um I, I think uh, overall, like, you know, for the audience, you know, it's it feels like it's clearly uh, a movie for young kids. And I think, um, you know, were I a young kid, I would totally dig it. There are things, uh, I think like Matt Leonard, like there's stuff technologically speaking that is just mind-blowing in this movie. But there are also some interesting, um, I think, limitations to the current state of the art. But uh, that being said, like, I mean, I, you know, I had fun. It was worth my, uh, my 10 bucks. And I, well, I'm probably going to, sorry, I was just going to say, I would probably add that I went with my whole family. So my wife, I have a 19-year-old daughter and a 16-year-old son and a 14-year-old son, and they all loved it to pieces. So I was definitely the, the odd one out in the car. The odd man out. <laughs> so... So the original Lion King was 94. Then there was a sequel, which was a Lion King 2, Simba's Pride. Then there was a Lion King 3 or 
another one around that time called Lion King Two and a Half, which was the telling of the story for another perspective. But anyway, there was a Lion King Three, which was uh, kind of Matata, and then there was of course the stage show musical. And then there's been a Simba Lion King TV series, a video game and many other forms of uh, whatever. And now we have a version that Variety said was one of the highest grossing live action films that Disney's ever done, Um, which was kind of weird as there was only one shot in the whole film apparently that was live action. The rest of it was completely, and by, by completely I mean foreground, background, environment, everything, uh, CG. So let me start by addressing that first. Matt, if you had to suggest a category for the visual for the team to submit to the Oscars, assuming that they wanted to submit to the Oscars, which I'm pretty sure Disney does, where does this fit? Like, what, what's the perception? What do you think it looks like? I mean, you know, I, I can see where one might make the case for uh, animated uh, film, but I, I think it's a visual effects film. Uh, personally, like that's where, even though everything in the film is animated, uh, to me, I, I don't know. I can't help but look at it and feel like uh, it's it's something beyond uh, a standard animated film. It's it's really walking an interesting line between um, maybe that sort of the way we have traditionally understood that category and how we talk about and think about visual effects. Because, Matt Leonard, I've gone to see Star Wars films that have had entire sequences that have run for minutes, maybe tens of minutes, that are completely CG. There's just no live action in them. Or if there is, it's a tiny little drop-in of a person inside a you know uh, sort of vessel flying around. But generally speaking, they are visual effects that are 100% uh, fully animated that I'm seeing on the screen. Like, What's your opinion on this? It's definitely difficult. I was thinking about this last night and just thinking how this fits because obviously it is animated i mean i think i read somewhere that there's no motion capture in this at all it's all that's correct yeah so it falls into the same methodology that something like uh, the incredibles would or toy story as we were talking about a few weeks ago but then obviously a lot of the way that they built it is based off of uh photography and on set and um things that they took, you know, on location, though obviously that was all used, you know, to build a digital world. So it definitely, we're in this weird place where it feels like more and more things that are synthetic are looking photo real. So I think the Academy almost needs to start trying to figure out when they talk about an animated feature, does it need to be a kind of a Disney um, cartoon or or? Pixar style is that what they're looking for and is um, sort of the visual effects category does it need to be live action whether it's a live action feel whether it's um, animated or or there's a large proportion of it that's been shot and then they've inserted Iron Man or or Hulk or whatever it may be into that so I think they it needs it's getting to a point where I think where they need to put some some rules down to maybe make it easier to think about what they're going to do but for me i would i'd be tempted to put this into the vfx category as as matt had said but also i guess if you put it into the animated category then it might clean up just because it looks so amazing yeah it's an interesting problem isn't it john favreau's uh sort of 
got an interesting take on on how he kind of looks at it, and various people have you know chimed in in different ways. I guess the concern about calling it anything other than an animated film is to take uh, credit away from the animators, um, but it wasn't. It, it, to, you, to your point earlier, you said it was like kind of the methodology of a traditional animated CG film, like a Toy Story-esque thing. But that isn't true, right? Because, in fact, all of the lensing of it, as it were, the, the uh, shot design, the cinematography, was very much done with, um, with virtual cinematography, with virtual production, in a way that built on what uh, John Favreau had done with... Um, with Jungle Book. So it was, you know, in some cases pushing dollies around in a studio. Now, what they were seeing on the screen was a view into a virtual world and there was no sort of ARRI camera filming anything in the studio. But nevertheless, it wasn't sitting at your desk, um, you know, plotting out a curve on a computer and doing a kind of a a thing that way. Um, So, and then again, no motion capture, as you say. So it wasn't like there was a, a live action basis they didn't even have that to work with. So I, I agree, it's a really weird uh, thing. So, so let me ask you this. In, in terms of the film, there has been some stuff stuffed uh, posted on social media saying, oh, well, you know, the characters weren't expressive enough, they didn't uh, smile or, or express enough, they should have had more cartoony kind of faces, um, still with, you know, the realistic first, still with the realistic environments, but just a more uh, expressive, clearly non-realistic face. What do we think about that? Because one of the problems with the film uh, as a challenge, not a problem I'm saying that, that exists in the cinema, but a problem you know, from the, the get-go is no matter how realistic you make a lion, lions don't talk and, and uh, you know, uh, meerkats don't sing. And it's just a thing that you need to do in this film is to have these characters talk and sing. Uh, Matt, what do you think? I mean, I, I guess I feel like those are, those are really specific... Um, I mean, I thought about that as I was watching it. There's such specific questions that really get at the heart of um, the aesthetic and sort of style-based choices that were made by the filmmakers. And so I I don't know that um, I could say one uh, particular course of action would be better or more advantageous than another. I think that... um, you know, for the most part, the the, the mouth uh, animation and the, the character work and stuff, uh, it didn't bother me. It sort of reminded me of um, uh, the film Babe, you know, the original... Which, uh, which won an Academy Award for visual effects. Right, which, I mean, I think is, is different, though, in the sense that it's it's a live action or no, real... No, no, but my point was that uh, I was just sort of saying that the mm. the community thought that Babe worked because obviously they rewarded it right. at the Oscars. It and, wasn't and I feel like this, this feels really similar to me in terms of at least the, that piece, you know, the sort of the lip sync of a, of a kind of a live action-esque um, animated version of a, a photo real character that's lip syncing. You know, the other films have done that too. Like um, there was a, another Disney film, I think it was a Disney film, maybe... Fifteen, thirteen years ago or so, dinosaur, um, yep. which was similar, I think, in in terms of the the attempt at a photorealistic aesthetic with um, lip sync. And so, you know, for me, those things uh, are stylistic decisions that 
I don't, I didn't have an issue with, I think it's, it's an interesting choice. I don't know that it clearly, it's not one that everybody would make. I think the fact that we've seen this kind of critical response, um, on the part of some people is indicative of the fact that, you know, there are people who think they would have done it differently, um, or maybe should have done it differently. Um, I didn't have that response to it really. I think like, the, the choices they made are interesting and there it's an interesting creative and aesthetic challenge. And I, I think for the most part, um, it works. Dinosaur was 2000 actually. So that's, uh, 19 years ago. Uh, but yeah, I had completely okay. forgotten that. That's a great <laughs> reference because, uh, yeah. that was, that was a weird time as well. Cause remember they had uh, walking with dinosaurs happening around the same time, which was not talking characters. Yeah. yeah. And mm-hmm. I remember thinking at the time then that I thought that was more creatively successful, creatively successful than the talking dinosaurs. I, I should say my opinion on this is that I think the faces totally worked and I would be a lot less interested in this film if they had more cartoony faces. I think that could have been into some kind of animal uncanny valley of weirdness. Um, you know, I just don't know I would have gone for it. Or- and, I, and I think that, that cartoony stylized version, then, it, then it's really getting into, I think, the kind of more traditional territory of like a Pixar kind of movie yeah. because you're, you're doing a stylized um, kind of, you know, bulbous kind of, you know, rounded version of these characters to create that kind of character-driven aesthetic. And we've seen that before. This is something we haven't seen. Which is which is probably a good enough reason to do it, isn't it, Matt Leonard? Because if we had a cartoony kind of version, you'd be a lot less. There'd be a lot less reason to go see it because we've kind of seen that, as Matt just said. We haven't seen this before. Like it is a different thing, and in of its own right, that's interesting. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, when I was when I was watching it, obviously, the lions are the key characters, and I was thinking while it was, while I was watching the show, what else have I seen like this? And I thought of. Witherman Hughes's Aslam in in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and I thought the the way he spoke was was more pronounced in a similar way, I guess, to how Draco was in um, in Dragonheart. And I think yeah. they must have made a decision with this that they would get the mouth to almost do like the minimum amount of mus- um, movement to sell the lines that they needed to deliver. And I think as as everyone has said, that that was a wise move because I think if they suddenly started pronouncing things much more extravagantly, I think it would have taken you out of the movie. I mean, the film has grossed $1.4 billion. That would be with a B. <laughs> so, you know, like it's hard to criticise it too much. Um, uh, but, yeah, like opening weekend was $190 million, um, which is just astounding. So it's a much-loved narrative and there is something to be said that if a film is 19 years from the original that you've actually got a whole new generation and almost got the kids that saw it that may have been five or six and now at that age that you know they've either got kids of their own or or at least you know that's it's a generational change but i yeah i think totally it was an interesting thing to do um caleb was the cinematographer and he alone is just super interesting in my mind because um he's He's not a young cinematographer because he's done an amazing volume of work from Passion of the Christ, The Right Stuff, um, Unforgettable. Uh, so he's done like these really awesome films that are just iconic and totally. I've got, you know, DVDs and downloads of these films. I love them. I think The Right Stuff is just, you know, superbly interesting film. So Caleb isn't somebody that you would go to 
if you were doing kind of an animated film, it's just a straight-up animated film. Um, so he's bringing to that the lensing, the staging, the, the cinematography of a very much live-action aesthetic. And I think that reads... I mean, the opening shot with the mouse, mm. now, I don't know if you'd agree, but like that just felt to me just delightful in, in how sort of it was cinematic rather than just straight-out CG virtual camera that could do anything. Yeah, I totally agree. It was it was so obvious from really early on that they had they had got someone that really understood cinematography, because I mean it was all set outside. There were obviously times when they were in caves or or more enclosed areas, but for the most part, it was it was outside, and the look of the lighting was just amazing, pretty much all the way through. But also, as as you'd said, Mike, the lensing and the the use of that super shallow depth of field uh, just brought a real uh, kind of reality to it. Even the little blemishes and and lens artifacts that they added in just every now and again just made you constantly think that it had been filmed with a camera as opposed to you were just looking at a a render man render. Yeah. Yeah. So should we go through the process of how they did it for those that don't know? Um, So this this is a film that uh, was mo- like the the bulk of what you'd call visual effects and, and animation and everything else is coming from MPC. Um, and uh, MPC, um, to be given like absolutely all the credit you can possibly give for just producing spectacularly good-looking imagery mm. and good-looking animation. Like I think that the, you, no matter what you think about the structural issues or even like the should they have done it issues, I've not had anybody criticise the visual fidelity of the fur, the, um, the, the lensing. I remember seeing the, the uh, um, original trailer thing, like for, is it D19 or D13, whatever it is, the, what's that called? The um, Disney show that uh, the internal, I think it's D19, is it? Or D21, no, D21 it is. And... Um, <laughs> Uh, is that right? Have I got the right one? The, the I, conference I, thing? I know what you mean, but I can't remember what they call it. I can it. never remember. I've never been to it. Um, I think it's, it's D21. But, um, yeah, anyway, the point is uh, the, it might be D13. It might be D19. I don't know. <laughs> it's one of the Ds. Um, but the thing about it is the, um, they had a very early, very, very early uh, piece of footage that they showed at that uh, at, uh, I'm pretty sure it's D19. <laughs> yeah, D19. <laughs> I'm going to say D19. And um, what they did there uh, was jaw-dropping. Like they had this side, side shot uh, looking at a whole lot of uh, beasts kind of moving up towards Pride Rock. And it just looked so photographic it wasn't funny. And I was, I was just stunned at, at that. And from that moment on I was like hooked on the visuals. So MPC delivered uh, 1,490 shots um, but the process, just to outline it, and I apologise for just going through this, but to make sure we're all on the same page. So the team that lends it, the team that built it um, with the director was actually based primarily in Los Angeles. So John Favreau would turn up to a studio in Los Angeles where the cinematographer was, but also, uh, we mentioned, also Rob Legato uh, from I don't know, Titanic and, and uh, The Departed and Hugo and a ton of other Academy Award winning stuff. And, and Rob is as fanatical about lensing this in a physical way as anyone associated with the film. Um, and so he was sort of responsible 
uh, for providing Caleb and John Favreau with this environment that they could work the way that they did. And so uh, he brought in uh, Ben Grossman, who uh, was also on Hugo, but um, has done obviously a ton of other stuff. Again, Academy Award winner. And Magnopus, which is the company that uh, Ben helped found, set up this virtual production environment in Los Angeles. And the idea is the virtual production environment would film keyframe animation done out of the MPC team. So the MPC team would deliver shots of whatever was happening and obviously at different stages. And then you could, because it was all in real time inside uh, Unity uh, in real time, they would be able to actually get cameras and work out how they were going to film that action that was animated by the characters. Now, they had the capacity on set to do small tweaks to the animation, as in maybe change the timing or slide characters a bit or stuff. But generally speaking, notwithstanding that, they weren't animating any characters on stage or on set. They were just simply trying to film the animation that was coming um, uh, from Adam's team at uh, MPC. And so with that animation, they would film it, but they did most of that filming in VR. So they had a shared VR experience where you could put on... Uh, headset. Um, let's say the three of us are doing it. The three of us would put on headsets. I would see a representation of the both of you in virtual space, even though we'd be standing in the same room. You could be notionally, you know, six miles away from me on, on Pride Rock kind of. Uh, and, and then we'd have cameras and dollies and you could put down lights and you could uh, move the time of day and the sun and everything that you would imagine that you would want in a virtual environment from tape measures to dolly tracks to uh, techno uh, cranes, the whole lot. And I was actually um, lucky enough to be invited on set while they were filming this. So I got myself to experience this firsthand. Uh, stood up on Pride Rock with, um, uh, with Simba and, you know, like saw how this was. And it, when I was there and I wanted to put a light down, I grabbed from a menu a light and I said, hey, put a light here. And it doesn't just float there in some sort of abstract sense with a dot. You actually get the picture of that particular light and then a C-stand drops from that point, no matter how high up in the air I am, all the way to the ground and, uh, and appears as like a physical light on a very, very long um, kind of uh, pole. And if you put down track, you see track, etc. And then to film that, people in the actual studio, again, either with the VR headsets on or just seeing what the VR world's camera was seeing on a monitor would then uh, push actual dollies that were all geared or pan geared heads or use um, uh, any of the sort of normal filmmaking tools, right down to drones. And all of those would be producing virtual cinematography on the action, which would then, of course, go back to MPC for them to uh, do another layer of animation in. And it would go back to the stage for final lensing and theoretically uh, to edit. And so what's so remarkable about the tech on this is not just what MPC pulled off in this remarkable uh, realism that they were doing, but that all of the sort of shooting of it was handled as if it was like a live action shoot, albeit in this dedicated soundstage uh, in, um, uh, in LA. So I think that's a good summary, but I don't know if that wasn't clear, <laughs> jump right in, guys. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we, we also had that uh, opportunity to see uh, Rob Legato and Ben Grossman talk uh, about some of the virtual production techniques um, at Seagraph uh, just a couple of weeks ago. And um, I think that, you know, that use of 
uh, of essentially, you know, game engine technology with a host of, um, you know, cinema tools that are sort of custom written to permit uh, and allow, you know, traditional filmmakers to step into this virtual space and utilize the skill sets that they've spent, you know, many years um, developing on actual live action sets and to mimic that procedure and that process in the virtual world um, is uh, a really exciting sort of um, uh, crossover, like creating an analogous, um, you know, world. They sort of did some of this uh, in a a similar kind of thing um, uh, with the Jungle Book, uh, but it was, you know, the this is the first time I think it's been done where they there weren't any live action actors uh, participating and creating whether it was motion capture or anything. It's all using these sort of uh, some prefabricated animated elements. Um, but the fact that they could, you know, scout, lo- they talked about scouting locations um, on the virtual set and that they could travel around and scout locations. They would um, use, uh, like you said, the traditional dollies um, and cranes to get specific kinds of shots to do some of the helicopter shots. They actually had a drone pilot come in to the volume where they were capturing some of this stuff. Um, and they, they used a drone pilot to capture what would have been sort of whether it was a drone shot or a helicopter shot and to sort of mimic, um, not only mimic, but to actually capture the shot in that way. So it had that real um, kind of feel that a camera operator, um, you know, working, whether it was in a helicopter or from a drone, would have to sort of create that naturalistic movement. And I do think that those things really show up in terms of the way the camera interacts with the characters on screen. And I think that that um, connective tissue that, that Ben Grossman and his team, um, it's seen, it sounded like anyway, like they were really heading up the sort of development on that end of things. I feel like that, I mean, it was, a, I'm sure, a large team effort, but that kind of stuff was really, really exciting and feels like it's really the, the most innovative technological component um, uh, in the not in the movie. I mean, there's many, but I think that that's definitely one of the biggest ones that feels like a big breakthrough. By the way, I just misspoke. Um, what I meant to say, uh, so I was confusing um, roles out of MPC. Andy Jones was the animation supervisor and Andy was responsible for the keyframe animation and all the stuff. Adam Valdez, who I referred to Adam earlier, was the visual effects supervisor from MPC. But I was, I was talking about the animation and I said, Adam, I meant to say Andrew, uh, or rather Andy. Um, so Andy Jones, yeah, provided uh, the or head of the team that did all of the animation stuff. He was the animation supervisor um, uh, with Stephen Hancock, I think. But um, generally speaking, uh, yeah, all of that stuff's coming from MPC. I think it's remarkably beautiful work, but I would agree with you, like the the stuff that was done by Magnopus in terms of developing up the virtual production stuff uh, in LA was remarkable. And that that D19 trailer that I was referring to was actually shot in Magnopus's offices with sort of the prototypes of what they would then go on to use um, because at that stage they didn't even have the, the sort of soundstage thing set up, um, which was kind of interesting, right, like just doing it with the prototype tools to see how, it, how it, that would work. Um, and I should also add that MPC... Um, 
is completely embracing this virtual production as well. MPC has its own virtual production tools now and its own um, uh, sort of philosophy, way of working that it will be using on other films uh, moving forward. So I don't want to imply that MPC wasn't doing virtual production or doesn't do virtual production work because it totally does. Uh, it's just that the tools they were using were, were originated out of, uh, out of LA. Um, I think... I think uh, I think that that talk with Rob Legato and uh, and Ben Grossman at um, at SIGGRAPH was one of the most entertaining <laughs> talks I heard at the entire uh, SIGGRAPH. Yeah, and and I and I got I gathered from what they shared in the talk that like there was a degree to which some of what they could share was it was slightly truncated because the uh, the talk that I think they were going to give initially a production session um, uh, at at the conference, a larger session, um, they kind of got the kibosh put on that at, at one point. And so they, the talk they did give was, um, in the, uh, NVIDIA with the NVIDIA group, um, sessions. And, um, it was a great talk. Like, I mean, they're both like, it was like a comedy stylings of, uh, of Ben Grossman and Rob Legato. They were hilarious. And, but they also provided a, a huge amount of information and context about like why they did what they did and what the reasons were behind the choices they made to pursue working in this, in this, um, kind of hybridized, uh, capacity. And, uh, it, it got, um, uh, it stayed, you know, kind of in a in a kind of layman's universe, but every once in a while it got pretty pretty wonky and technical in a way that um, it, it it was a great talk. Yeah, it was it was really good. It was funny, sure. wasn't it? Because it was a, such a small room, and if you didn't mm -hmm. know it was on, it wasn't advertised much. But it was, I think, the most interesting room to be in in the, all of SIDGRAPH. and uh, it was certainly packed to the rafters, and it went way over. Like uh, yeah. it was meant to, meant to finish, and they were just. And I should point out, they're also not just talking about this film. They were uh, riffing on stuff that they'd done on Jungle Book and uh, other lessons, going back to um, Aviator, right, where Rob Legato uh, mm -hmm. first started uh, visualizing stuff himself to work out how shots would be um, with pan and head tilts. Uh, uh, so it was just, yeah, it was phenomenally interesting. Um, I'm trying to remember whether Andy Jones was on um, Jungle Book because I know Ben was obviously, uh, so was Rob, so was Adam. I just, I'm guessing Andy was as well, but let me just check that up. But um, yeah, the, the fact that there's a whole team that were also working with John Favreau on Jungle Book um, and they could really learn from what worked there and what maybe didn't work, uh, and build on it was just hugely significant. Um, I just, yeah, I think there was a lot of interest out of Jungle Book, but nothing at the level that we're talking about in terms of actually delivering um, this kind of amazing um, uh, kind of visuals. It just, uh, I think that was good, don't get me wrong, but yeah, it was, this is a whole level above that, I think. It still does, though, uh, have some limitations, I think, that, that uh, it would be interesting to, to hear if you guys uh, saw some of those too. But Yeah, sorry, Andy Jones was on uh, Jungle Book. I was absolutely right. I just, for some reason in my notes, I didn't have him down for that. But, yeah, he was totally uh, uh, on, he was the animation supervisor on Jungle Book. Andy Jones is just a really good animator. Just let's not deny it. He's won a couple of Oscars <laughs> and he's just a really good guy. <laughs> Very good. I think it's In a, fact, it's he won an Oscar a... for The Jungle Book. Excellent. Go on, what were you going to say? I was just going to say that, it, it, I mean, we've we talked a little bit about, obviously, the cameras and, and the, the ability to do the lighting and things that you experienced 
in the virtual world. And I, it just feels to me like cinematography is going into a really interesting kind of phase now. I'm, I think of obviously Caleb has, has worked on this movie and we've had Roger Deakins working on something like Rango in the past. And it just must be really interesting for a cinematographer to kind of have the constraints taken off them where maybe they would need to go on set and and work out, okay, we need to shoot this at this time of day and we need the sun here and we need to be able to put track down here in order to get the move we want. To be able to go into a virtual world that they know is going to end up looking so beautiful as the Lion King did and literally just say, I want to put the sun there and I want it to be at, say, magic hour at six in the evening or whatever it would be um, and be able to do that and even tweak the naturalistic ways that light works that they obviously could go in and do if they wanted to must give a real sense of freedom uh, away from the constraints of the physical world that obviously they still want to work in but but being able to come into these virtual projects must be really interesting for for those individuals as cinematographers yeah i think it's um i think the quality of the cinematography in animated films before we even get to the lion king picked up a few years ago i remember when wally came out I thought the virtual cinematography was looking really snappy and really added a lot. And and this, you know, builds on that kind of tradition of you're saying of getting good um, DOPs involved, not because they're good animation cinematographers, but just good cinematographers. Um, and that was certainly the takeout, uh, I think you'd agree, um, Matt, from, from Rob, right? Rob just really was hammering the point about how significant... Uh, the cinematography was and, and Caleb's decisions and choices and way that he worked. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the, the entire sensibility of, you know, many decades working in a, in a, you know, traditional capacity as a cinematographer, that sensibility bringing that to that animated, uh, to an animated film, but working in this virtual way and, and then providing uh, the cinematographer with a set of uh, tools and a team um, that mirrors, uh, you know, the, and has the familiarity with the way that they've worked traditionally um, to allow them to work in this other capacity, I think is is uh, obviously a great entree into this highly technical form of filmmaking. Um, but I also think that uh, it does in turn yield uh, a more a, a more familiar look in some ways, like or a look and feel to the way in which you know uh, we experience cinema, you know, in the theater. Like it, you can tell that there is, you can tell that that element is there. It it does feel present on screen. Um, and again, that being said, I I still think there are some technical limitations that um, do also show up on screen. Um, and I guess the thing that I think stuck out most uh, to me, and I'm, w I'm wondering if you guys saw this, was that it felt like some of the shot compositions and some of the um, uh, way in which they chose to structure um, sequences, it, it seems like it worked best when um, the background was um, enclosed when when they were on a, a wide vista and you would be seeing um the characters in the foreground 
uh, maybe a small amount of action in the midground, and then a, a very distant um, and you know slightly um, elevated black levels, uh, you know, like a flashed background uh, in the distance, like you know occluded by atmospheric haze or something. It had the effect of rendering a large number of those wider scenes. To me, they looked very planar in the sense that, it, like, multi-planar, um, where it looked like there was Ooh, a foreground. Really? Yeah, because I, yeah, I felt like there I was... saw, like, a foreground oh, plane nice. where the primary action was, a mid-ground plane where there was oftentimes uh, no action, sometimes a small amount of action, uh, and then a background plane where there tended to be no action whatsoever. Um, and... Uh, maybe even a, a fourth plane in there somewhere in a couple shots. It worked great in uh, like the canyon where the stampede took place. Yep. Um, it, you know, in the environments where the 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 horizon was less visible, I felt like those uh, were much more um, successful in attaining uh, and maintaining that photorealism that we saw with the characters. But I felt like it crumbled a bit in places for me, at least as a viewer. Um, it, it felt like I, I could see the, I could, that's where I could see the artifice maybe like, or the limitations of what felt almost like um, near and far clipping planes, you know, when you're rendering something, it was like there was, we had the, the near plane uh, or the near, uh, near and far clipping plane for the, for the foreground. Then there was a, a near and far clipping plane for the mid ground. And then there was the background. And I felt like I saw that once I noticed it, I couldn't stop seeing it um, in shots. And you could follow the line that separated the foreground elements um, from the midground. Uh, I think often when the camera was um, parallel to the ground plane or, or closer to parallel to the ground plane where there weren't um, large objects, whether they were trees or, or the like, the canyon walls or whatever, um, occluding things in the distance, and it kind of makes sense from a technical standpoint that that would be the case. Um, I'm not really saying it's a. It's I mean, a, for me, the uh, the longer lens wide shots were the most successful shots. I, I liked those more than almost anything else. Mm-hmm. I, it's, there was thirty it's a, kilometers of terrain built for that. <laughs> yeah. I don't yeah. think that I don't I I know what you're saying, but maybe that's a compositional choice because I don't think it's a. I mean, I would be, I stand to be corrected, but I'd be stunned if it was any kind of actual technical, um, as you say, clipping plane thing. I gotta be thinking that was just stacked up that way visually. Um, huh. Yeah, maybe. I mean, it's I, I I don't know enough to know. I'm I'm just saying my I, I felt like I could see. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. And, and maybe that maybe that's an interesting thing, though, because that that brings up an interesting consideration too. Like when you do have, and you and we were sort of just talking about this. When you do have, in essence, like total control, so to speak, right? Where you can set the yep. light, you can set the camera wherever you want to go. You can place trees and bushes and rocks and whatever wherever you want them to be. I wonder sometimes too if that doesn't create. There, there is a there's an incredible beauty to this film, but there's also an artificiality to the film in that like it's a it's an idealized uh, realization of a photoreal environment. So there are times where there are trees and rocks and placement of items uh, in the background and in the environments where it's absolutely gorgeous. 
but it feels almost too perfect in places. Uh, for me, there was, there was a, there's an artificiality that came with, I think the total control and the ability to sort of move the sun, you know, to magic hour, uh, you know, at almost any turn, right. Um, also yields a kind of, um, a, a, almost a, it sounds like a weird that's like a, like a like a humble brag or something you know like it's it creates a level of perfection aesthetically that also somehow uh breaks or it broke for me a couple times the immersion in the world because i i was sort of maybe i was watching it too with you know an eye on talking about it on the show too so there's a degree to which maybe i'm being hypercritical a bit but i also feel like um you know, it would be cool if I, if I couldn't do it, if I couldn't find it and I couldn't see those things, but there were little bits like that, that, um, I still think it's, you know, an amazing technical achievement and it's gorgeous to watch. And I would highly recommend that people see it, but I also feel like there's really interesting, um, artifacts that are represented in, in this, uh, deep dive into this uh, sort of universe of technological virtual production. There are things that I feel like, you know, work really well and things that I feel like maybe don't work as well, I guess is what I'm, I'm, I'm suggesting, at least from my perspective. Yeah. It's really, it's interesting listening to, to you. I've, I've just pulled up the, the, I think the second trailer. I think there's only two trailers and I put up the, the second one and I'm just looking right at the beginning of that. There's a, there's a pan up that almost perfectly fits with your description of um, of Simba uh, going into the um, the elephant graveyard and the camera's kind of looking down at some water as they come into shot and then it pans up and there are these multiple levels as you said of of like background uh, rocks in front of them and then beyond that there's there's other rocks and mountains <laughs> and now you now you're talking about it I can see it but it was interesting when I was in the in the cinema, I, I never felt that. There was something else that we had talked about earlier that, that, that I did feel was taking me out of the, out of the movie, but it wasn't, wasn't that. But now you've highlighted it and I'm scrubbing back and forth looking at this trailer. <laughs> you can definitely see it. But, it, but in saying that, uh, in, in reading some things about the, the way they built the environments, I find it really interesting because... From what I can gather, and it, obviously it may not be correct, but I think it probably is, traditionally you would build an environment where there would be kind of digital map paintings in the background that may be projected or even just if they're in the very far distance, maybe just 2D. But I believe yeah. on this film they went a very long way to create a very three-dimensional um, kind of world that they lived in. And somewhere I read that they actually created 150 square kilometers of virtual set and i looked that up and it's about the same size that the idaho is so it's like a crazy amount of of 3d environment that they build and it would be really interesting with some of these shots that we're looking at as to whether we those are the shots that they went back and did a more traditional matte painting in the background or whether as mike said it's more of a a artistic choice that they just felt will will add um i don't know what it would be like atmospherics in the background okay well it just happens to have that result well there there were some trailer shots that were from the d23 because i bothered looking it up while we were talking the d23 expo <laughs> in 2017 
And I don't know you can judge a film by shots that were that Trailer early. shots. Yeah, mm, like yeah. that is like... Because quite frankly, in the D23 Expo footage, there are animals that are from Jungle Book, right? Because they hadn't made them yet. And they were just, you know, obviously they were, I think, for example, uh, Indian elephants, not African elephants, that kind of thing, right? Um, where obviously for the trailer, that's okay. You don't do that for the film because you get it right. But, you know, you're trying to build uh, a sense of enthusiasm about the production. Mm. Um, yeah, so I, I, I'm going to say... I liked, I really liked the wide shots in this film, which just felt to me like it had such a feeling of uh, natural BBC gorgeous cinematography. But I do, I do take on your point. This is an idealised view, right? Like everything's pretty. It's not mm-hmm. ugly. It's a pretty film. It's done with Hollywood lighting in that sense of, you know, it's not a documentary. There's a lot of magic out. Well, ex- except for except for the, the hyena, uh, like, encampment where they sort of live is is uh, sort of the antithesis of that beautiful, stylized... Uh, it's stylized in a different way where it's kind of like it's the sort of environmental, you know, over... Um, uh, deforestated kind of uh, over far over yeah. um, hunted environment where it's it looks um, kind of like a, a, a dark and brooding uh, vegetation free planetoid kind of space and and I actually found that uh, at least to my eye like that environment um, but again maybe it, it didn't have the same wide um, the really broad, wide horizon vista, but again, that environment I thought worked really well. Um, it, it was really successful as a as a hyper photorealistic space. Just I don't know, maybe just something about those wide shots for me, and this and the the composition and the structure, um, and the sort of idealized nature of them. They there was something that broke the. The, it sounds so pompous to say this, but the you know the the film term, the French, the mise en scene, or whatever you know, the the sort of the total cinema, like parts of it broke for me uh, in some of those wide shots. I had the I had the opposite um, reaction to them, and I, I can't say why. I just I, I think the uh, just what I've said before. I think it's the best articulation I can provide for, so, for my reasoning behind that. So switching gears for a second. Just let's now think about it, not so much from the, the realism and the staging and the cinematography, but the animation. I don't want to be Andy Jones or any one of his team faced with the problem of doing the tuft of hair that becomes the dung ball that becomes the thing that gets back. <laughs> that, yeah. that, that, would, that would easily be a take-you-out-of-the-film stupid thing um, in a style where you're trying to be very realistic and sort of photoreal. Dung balls aren't what you sort of go to as a um, as a sort of an obvious uh, transitional point of great story significance. That was a quite an undertaking to animate that, the staging of that, and animation of it, so that the audience knew what the hell you're watching and like, why am I watching dung, um, and and what's the connection? I, I thought they that was like a really just interesting problem. It was not character animation so much as it was just a a, a straight out problem for the animation team to get around. Matt Leonard, what do you think? I think, I think it worked really well. I, uh, as it started to play out, I immediately thought of, I think it's from Forrest Gump, the, the bag 
plastic bag scene is that in that movie? Am I remembering uh, that? No, that's in uh, American Beauty. Uh, the American but the feather in Forrest Gump. The feather is in Forrest Gump. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I I thought of that, but it, again, as as you had said, Mike, it didn't take me out of the film. I kind of knew or felt like I knew where it was where it was going. It, it felt like okay, they're going to use this as a as a mechanism to to kind of broadcast the fact that he's still alive and there's there's hope coming but at no point did it ever take me out i was i loved where it went and how it was picked up by all the different um different animals and again it was kind of similar but obviously looked completely different and way better than than what they did in the polar express with the kind of the golden ticket that flies off the train (laughs) and it's picked up by various animals and things but yeah i think it worked really nicely and the quality of the animation and the quality of the rendering because as you said it's just tufts of hair it's not like they're dealing with with some paper or something of substance it's just this very thin delicate shape that's moving around and i i guess going back to the cinematography again it i love the fact that the camera wasn't always perfectly aligned to it like they had some kind of um constraint constraining the camera direction to where that was all the time it felt very much like the cameraman didn't quite know where it was going to go and it was trying to catch it up and it would sometimes kind of go past it and then come back and again it just kept the sense of i'm looking at something that that's real in some sense so uh, yeah i I loved it yeah i thought the the dung beetle animation in particular is so great and it's it looks like it's ripped almost straight out of, I don't know if it was, um, I want to say Planet Earth, the BBC mm. uh, documentary series. I, I, I mean, it could have been that or some other, like, a, you know, a traditional style, like very high production value nature documentary, where I feel like I've, I've seen that very thing. And the, the actual animation of that um, beetle and the way that it was um, ambulating and using its, you know, uh, front legs and then its hind legs and sort of situating itself to move this this ball along the, the sort of um, floor of the the lake bed or wherever it was. Like that stuff was so uh, brilliantly and lovingly animated, and it it felt so real. It was really captivating as a sort of departure from the sort of the macro world of the, the sort of mammalian world that we had been um, living in to go into this kind of insect universe for at least a short period of time as that sort of transitory part of the story takes place. And I, I really found it, um, it, it was a sort of a, a really nice um, break from the visual language that we'd been seeing to sort of get that tighter, more... Um, you know, much shallower depth of field lensing going on to sort of tell that smaller story um, that was really important to the larger narrative too. I thought that was great. What do you think about the fact that there were some real shot-for-shot throwbacks to the original film? Uh, So the most obvious one is when uh, Simba transitions in age and you end up with a shot of them silhouetted against uh, the full moon. Um, so I guess my question is at one level, that's a nice nod to those that recognize the shots, but in another, those original shots were designed with very expressive, bouncy characters with lots of secondary animation and stuff. And now you're trying to make those same framings and shots work for creatures that aren't 
doing those kind of bouncy animated kind of movements, but in fact walking with a much more realistic uh, walk cycle. Do, did any of those shots, I guess, it's hard to ask you, Matt, because you haven't actually seen the original, yeah. but you're probably aware <laughs> of some of those shots, are you or not? Yeah, I mean, I, I could tell the ones that were, that were I mean, because I've seen, of course, trailers and I've seen yeah. a couple scenes here and there from the animated film. And, yeah, I mean, like, I... I I could certainly see, uh, like that being a, a, and I did read some of the sort of critique of those choices on the part of the filmmaker, but I also kind of feel like, uh, you know, to me, it, it would be exciting to see, but I think you do see it. You see it all throughout the film, these other kind of, um, compositions and stylistic approaches to sort of, uh, key elements of the narrative. And I think those little touches are just, it's an homage to, to the original film. And I don't know, I just sort of, and I think even the opening, the Disney, um, logo opening, which is sort of this slightly modernized version of the traditional keyframe animation of the castle and the fireworks and stuff. Um, you know, it's sort of the opposite. Um, so to me, it's, um, I don't know. I, I liked it. I thought it was fine. I didn't have any problem with it at all. Matt Lennon? Mm, I would be, I think I would be the same. I, I definitely spotted them. The one that jumped out at me the most was um, the shot as, as um, when Simba's uh, in the canyon just before obviously the, the dreaded incident takes place and the, the camera drops back to a shot where it's above the edge of the canyon, looking down into the canyon with the wildebeests kind of pouring in from the side. And as that came up, I, I thought to myself, I bet you could put the original 2D version directly over the top of this and it would fit perfectly. <laughs> um, but I think but I, I've seen the, the 2D version a lot. My kids loved it and, and so we, we had it on in the house quite a lot. And, and therefore... For me, and I talked to the kids afterwards, they liked it because although so much of it was, was slightly new, when they had those bits come on, it just kind of took them back and almost gave them more to, to the shot than they were actually just delivering if you hadn't seen the original because they got oh, that kind of cool. warm, fuzzy, like, ah, oh, I remember that shot. It's like a callback. Yeah. yeah, exactly. One of the most successful... Um, I think links back to the original that could have gone astray is the character animation on Scar. I thought he presented, like he was very thin at times and, and, but I thought that original villain was good and the new villain was uh, different and had all the same essences or sort of had the same essence as the, uh, as the original in terms of a sort of an intelligent cunning viciousness without any kind of natural bravery. I thought that was a really well-interpreted character. In fact, I'd probably say it's one of my most favourite characters, uh, away from the comic, uh, which we'll get to next, <laughs> the comic <laughs> stylings of, um, of the supporting cast. But, yeah, in, these, in, in the, the sort of dramatic uh, realm, um, th there's one voice actor, obviously, that's the same between the original, um, which is... Um, uh, to be expected, obviously, with the cast changing and everything else. But if you were talking about just leaving out the voice acting for a second, I just thought Scar was a really good uh, piece of, of character animation. You guys want to pick a favourite? Was there anything that uh, away from the, um, the comic relief that you thought was just really good in terms of the character animation? I think I'd probably agree with you. With, for me, it was definitely Scar in that 
in the original, obviously in the in the original cartoon, he's much more expressive and kind of s- slimy and 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 just kind of like uh but here they obviously couldn't do that because of the the decisions they took to to dial back the facial animation but they seem to have what they're taken away from the face they added in to the body and the way that that he just moved around and and almost like slithered in some ways that just the his walk style and the way that he, he they had animated the weight of the of um the muscles and things like that so that he would definitely be my favorite because i thought they really added in in a very kind of theatrical way a great performance to him yeah yeah i uh, i liked him a lot so so matt what about the comic mm. presence the comic um uh riffing that went on with uh Puma i mean and- i think I, yeah i mean i think that you know first i was thinking of the john oliver the the bird okay uh uh, he was he was fun. He's great. John Oliver's just uh, such a, a funny uh, voice. Uh, he has such a funny voice, and he was he was appropriate uh, in that role. And, and uh, but then um, I think the uh, I can't I don't know who was the meerkat with Seth Rogen. What was that actor? I feel like I should know who that was, but, but uh, I the, uh, so I can look that up. I thought that the 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 Seth Rogen though uh, as the warthog was it just he was just awesome he was so fantastic and there were moments where <laughs> this is so awful but there were it sounds terrible but I, I think it's also a compliment to the character animators too because there are moments where the warthog like it kind of looked like Seth Rogen to me even like <laughs> right. they were yeah like I, I was just like it's it's so good like it I never would think of Seth Rogen as a warthog but like the voice and then the the, the rendering of the character and the movement of the character it was so I thought it was so well integrated so tightly integrated that like I really felt like when that character was on screen like you know it 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 really worked in a way that um you know, he, I mean, he was like, he was so gross and kind of a, you know, like a love, lovable, but sort of disgusting, uh, you know, hairy little beast. And I, I don't know, it was, it was great. I thought it, he was the one I think that really stood out. I mean, maybe just because that voice acting is, you know, Seth Rogen has such a um, distinctive voice, but, um, I thought it was really good. And the way they also, the audio cues that they also added because he's a, um, whatever you call that, a, a hooved uh, character, the, the sort of uh, clicking of the hooves um, as he moved, moved around in some of the environments also added a lot. Like he had these other elements to his character that made him um, really distinctive uh, from, a, from an animation point of view. So, so Matt Leonard, did you see the stage show of um, A Lion King, the musical? Uh, yeah, I actually did. I have seen it, yes. Okay, so I, I know that, that the other Matt hasn't. So in that, uh, Matt that hasn't seen it, <laughs> um, they get this problem, right, that like they've got these incredibly great African mask-type uh, outfits which were just a landmark move in production design when The Lion King mm-hmm. came out. I, think yeah, just, just I mean, so, I've, seen, I've seen pictures of that and, yeah. and video of the but stage. But when they got to Timon and Pumbaa, they had a real... A real problem because they didn't sort of perceive that they would work in that kind of African mask sense. So you get these sort of uh, actualizations of the cartoon character on the stage with effectively puppetry. Um, so they're very different 
And my point, I guess, is that I don't think that worked anywhere near as well in the stage show as it did here. So there was a precedent with the stage show that you didn't have to maintain the same kind of look, as it were, between the dramatic uh, characters and the, um, and the sort of the comic relief. And it worked. Obviously, the stage show was a huge hit around the world and, and uh, rightfully so. But um, I actually think that these characters, though comical and, uh, you know, clearly serving a different purpose in the story, just still felt part of the same world that they didn't... I don't know if you'd agree with me, Matt Leonard, but they just didn't feel like they were part of the same world in the stage show. It was fun mm, and the kids definitely. loved it, but they could have stood out. Yeah, they did for sure. Um, it's remarkable that you can have that serious performance from the dramatic uh, and the beasts that sort of don't talk, that just give this sort of supernatural kind of super realist kind of look and still get away with um, with Timon and Pumbaa just doing the kind of wacky stuff that they were doing and it still felt like they were... I mean, that's, I think, one of the most successful uh, parts of this adaptation. I think, like, John Favreau just gets major points for directing this in such a way that... It, it did connect and it didn't feel like, well, okay, we're now going off and having some comic relief and then we're coming back again. Um, I, I thought it was remarkable because it would have been the place that they would have been most likely, I think, to have gone to a cartoon thing over those characters. I mean, that would be where... And if you had have gone to a more cartoony uh, physicality to the characters and appearance and everything else, you could have pointed to the stage show as an excuse for doing it and they just totally didn't do that. Um, yeah, I think I, I think that's something I'd, I'd highlight too. I think it's important to sort of uh, recognize John Favreau as a filmmaker, as a um, as a leader of a big team like this, and as a um, as a sort of manager and a and a a, a, a tastemaker. Maybe um, yeah. I think he he if you look at his body of work where he's you know the principal in terms of the the leading the filmmaking team as a director, he's, um, he's a, he makes great, great choices. He has a really impeccable sense of, of cinema and uh, has a great eye. And, um, yeah, I think uh, he's the perfect guy to do this kind of project, too. And I think, actually, it's, it's really interesting that he's, you know, from... Uh, whether it's, you know, Iron Man, the first big Marvel uh, film that sort of sets the tone or his more personal films like the film Chef. I don't know if you guys ever saw that. that uh, he, I love uh, that film, yeah. That he made, which is a great, you know, father-son kind of mm. uh, narrative tale. And um, not unlike this movie, which is kind of a father-son uh, tale too in some ways. Um, but I think he... he it's so interesting that he can walk that line between uh, this highly technical form of filmmaking and then that really sort of more personal indie kind of filmmaking. And he's also, of course, an actor. Um, so I think he brings a really uh, nuanced and intelligent sensibility to to the filmmaking in a way that uh, I, I don't know that many filmmakers could do all of those things. And so, uh, I don't know, I just, I think the fact that you mentioned that, it just makes me, that's one of the things I really like is when I see it's going to be a John Favreau movie, I think like, oh, this will probably be pretty cool, you know? Uh, and it might be cool in a really personal way, but it might also be really cool and exciting in a really technical way too, which is a unique um, uh, set of qualities to have both, uh, both of those things. I wonder if yeah. you're saying that that because he's an actor as well as a director, whether 
he has that kind of extra sense as to how far you can push things. I mean, going back to this, the the conversation we just had with with Pumba, there's many um, shots where he almost is, it's almost like he's dancing or kind of jigging along, and that obviously is such a fine line as as we were saying between it suddenly going cartoony and and becoming unreal, but they managed to keep it where it still felt physically correct and the right weight and the right um, kind of physicality as to what that creature could be doing. And yet it was still funny and and just an interesting kind of performance that he did when he was happy and did that kind of jigging along. So I think, as you were saying with, with, uh, with the director, having that sense as to how far to push it is obviously something that is probably quite tricky to do, but he just nails it mm-hmm. so well. Yeah, I mean, if you think about John Favreau's career for a second, for a start, I mean, you know, he's delightful on screen when he is acting as um, happy in uh, in the Marvel universe. But he's also, as you say, he set up the Marvel universe, or at least the modern MCUs with the with Iron Man. But he's executive producer on nearly all, if not all, of the MCU type. Uh, that exclude the ones that came over from Sony. But, like, he's, you know, executive producer on Endgame, executive producer on uh, Age of Ultron and all that kind of stuff, in addition to uh, the Iron Man films. So that's remarkable. His directorial stuff is remarkable, which is animated and uh, Jungle Book and, and this, which are huge in their own rights. But, of course, he's also... Uh, now doing television with The Mandalorian, which is to say the Star Wars um, TV show that Disney is doing. He's uh, behind that. This is another groundbreaking... um, Obviously, it hasn't come out yet, but we know from uh, comments that were made uh, at SIDGRAPH and stuff that this is going to be using... um, cutting-edge virtual uh, production technology that's even a, a level beyond what we're seeing here. It's using final pixels in camera by uh, techniques that are involving LED screens and stuff. Um, so this is somebody that's spanning, like, basically just comedy, animated, drama, mega tentpole pictures, and then super tech in a bunch of different uh, categories. He's got to be the most influential filmmaker right now pretty much going isn't he i mean isn't he yeah i i think so i think that's a i think you could certainly make that case um uh pretty strongly i mean and you just did i mean <laughs> yeah i would totally agree i mean i'm did you hear I'm him talk at and, yeah yeah i mean and what a what an awesome like uh person too like he just seems like just a really like the nicest down guy. to earth like yeah, yeah, like what, the kind of thing we always say about like Ron Howard or something, you know, like yeah. he's sort of like this an next generation, um, just like, you know, really great guy who seems like he's got all this success for really for all the right reasons, you know. And, and Matt Leonard, he spoke at the uh, Epic User Group, so he was a surprise guest, sat on stage and just did a, you know, uh, one-on-one with, uh, you know, talking about uh, his career and stuff. Here's the thing that I found fascinating about that, and Matt, I think you'd agree with me. He didn't he didn't muck up the technology. Like normally, when you're listening to someone who is not from the tech background, they'll make some references to some stuff, and you just cut them a bit of slack, right? They don't use exactly the right term, and they kind of then the, the essence of what they're saying is totally there. But it's you know it's a little bit like you know they'll they'll use the wrong kind of 
mm. lingo compared to what he didn't like every time he was referring to the tech yeah he seemed to be like right on the money with how i would describe it and on a good day and i don't describe yeah, it totally he <laughs> he definitely gets it and the other thing i thought was so great about him too in his talk was that and and other talks i've heard him give too he's the same he's like there's a a humility to the guy too. Yeah. Like he really does. He's a, he is a collaborator. He talks constantly about how he views, uh, you know, filmmaking, which of course it is this way, but he certainly talks about viewing it as it's a collaboration and he's, you know, working with all these people who he knows are, you know, great experts, whether it's the visual effects team or the cinematographer or, you know, the, the dolly grip or whoever it might be and it's all these people who are experts at what they do and they're all working together to get the best thing you know and and it it wasn't about him it's about you know it's about the team and it's about the project and i found that really um endearing too it's hard not to really respect the guy and like the guy from his work but then you hear him and see him talk and um he's he's a it just seems like a cool dude you know. I mean, for this discussion about it being a live-action film, he was very respectful to the animators at MPC on stage when he was at a, a real-time live event, wasn't he? He was like... Yeah, yeah. He was totally respectful of the of the work that the animators had done uh, in a sensible kind of way. Hey, can I tell you one quick kind of story? We've obviously got a, a piece on FX Guide about the virtual production stuff, but um, in researching that and talking to the team and stuff, I heard this delightful story. Uh, so... On the virtual stage, you're obviously standing all in proximity to each other, right? I mean, I could be six feet from you, but with a VR helmet on. But in the virtual space, I don't have to hang out where you are. I can just be anywhere I want. If you walk up to the virtual camera, you can just reach down and pull off the, the what would be in real life, the, I don't know, the LED screen that would be sitting on top of the camera. Like imagine a seven-inch screen <laughs> appearing like it's on top of the camera. You can pull that off and you can walk away with it and a new one pops back on the camera. And whenever you go with oh, it, you cool. can then stretch it as big as you like, right? And so, in fact, when they were trying to work out whether the IMAX stereo version of this would be okay, they just made a virtual IMAX studio uh, IMAX cinema and then could watch any shot in virtual IMAX, right? So, I mean, you know, but anyway, so, so John would wander over and grab the, the monitor, uh, like pull one off, which would cause another one to pop back, wouldn't upset anyone, but he'd now wander off with the monitor. Now, he could go anywhere in the virtual world because, you know, you could. So he would occasionally, while they're setting up shots and laying down tracks and working out stuff on very complicated things, he would sit in a corner of the the virtual world and build a little video village of himself, right? Because he could just make the screen as big as he wanted and he could see everything. Now, of course, he could hear everybody talking because they were four feet away from him in the real world, right? But he's sitting virtually kilometres away from them. Does that make sense? <laughs> yes. And occasionally he would do things to entertain himself, like building rock snowmen. And so he would pick up rocks and autograph them or build little characters and stuff because he was just waiting for them to set up a shot, right? And apparently he did this one day and uh, the tracking system that they used at MPC logged all the assets in and then, of course, logged all the changes and went back so there was a tight loop. It's one of the great things about how MPC set this up with um, Magnopus is they just had a total tracking system. And so notes came back one day saying, we're not quite sure what the deal is with the rearrangement of the rocks on on this site like is this a, a scene that's going to be added like what's going on everyone's like what are you talking about <laughs> and like well you've built a and done scene modifications you know like way off from where we principal photography was we're just wondering is what's that about and they just had to scratch their heads until they realized he just 
it's just where John had been sitting and he'd been building things and <laughs> making little, because you can just pick up entire trees or rocks or do whatever you want and just stack them yeah. in virtual reality, which, uh, which I thought was just delightful. Um, yeah, just an extraordinary thing. Actually, one other thing I, I want to say on a technical level, because I would kick myself if I didn't, uh, which is a, a really significant part about the filmmaking process that, um, that they touched on, uh, Matt, when they were talking at that uh, terrific SIGGRAPH talk. Every uh, technician that was there, so somebody that's pushing the dolly track, someone that's pulling focus, somebody that's uh, operating the camera, all these people are working like a normal crew in harmony. And it's laying that down as the camera take but it records it technically as a separate track per action that you've calibrated. So not only does it record the track, but you could obviously decide, oh, look, I've just got this tiny little um, SLR track that moves two feet, but I'm just going to pretend that that's the dolly track for the entire major motion picture technocrane, and you would just gear that so you could use it with one hand and have the same as pushing a technocrane around. So every track is uniquely identified. The data of it is separately recorded. And of course, it's able to be fed into MPC so they could uh, feed that directly into their setup and immediately start doing cool stuff. And so on any given day, the animators at MPC could not only just get the data from what happened, but they could go onto the virtual set in VR and see how all the lights were set up, see how everything was staged uh, and get a sense of it before they went back to their animation. But the, the part of the technical thing I wanted to highlight is that should, for some reason, one part of that take need to be adjusted because everything was perfect so we didn't quite pull focus, it is possible to do it like um, laying down multi-tracks in a recording studio. You can just lock every other track and go again just for focus. And so while they tended to not mm. do this, it's a very interesting thing moving forward, this idea of a multi-track uh, virtual production environment where you, you could have one person, um, they didn't do this, but you could have one person operate the dolly, then operate the focus pull, then operate the camera move, then operate um, you know, anything they wanted because every track is laid down, all the data is always collected. And you could even do it, which I think they did on a couple of occasions, where they would run it at half speed. So if you had to do a super... Uh, hard uh, focus pull, you could actually run everything at half speed so the focus puller would be able mm. to totally nail it. And then, of course, you just play it back in real time. And, mm. and that is sort of obvious when you say it out loud, but kind of blew my mind as to where that could go over the coming years as yeah. we think about what it did to the recording industry. It's so cool. <laughs> it's really interesting. Yeah, it's like yeah, auto-tuning uh, for focus pulling. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, we're kind of out of time, but it's, um, I, I, again, I just apologise for, for not um, noting that Andy had, in fact, won an Oscar on uh, doing the uh, <clears throat> animation for uh, Jungle Book. Um, but if MPC will forgive me for that uh, major faux pas earlier in the episode, uh, say thank you so much, guys, for being here and talking about this. It's uh, been really great. Um, Matt, it was terrific seeing you in uh, Los Angeles. I just wish we'd had more time, um, but it was great seeing yeah, you. Yeah, it was, it was great fun. I mean, I, I, it was great to see you, of course, uh, and it, I saw so many uh, old friends that I hadn't seen for a long time and made a lot of new friends. I had uh, a dozen students who were working the conference. Uh, I took them all out to dinner at El Chol one night, which was really fun. Had a great time with all my VCU students um, who were volunteering at the conference this year and some who were just attending. Um, and just one other thing I wanted to mention at Seagraph this year, which I, I thought was really cool, was, um, I, went, it was I went to the um, 
uh, uh, with you, Mike. Actually, we went to the um, the Foundry All Stars event, yeah. and there were some uh, 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 some women uh, who got up on stage. Who's uh, forgive me, their names uh, slip my mind right now, but one of whom works for Marvel, and one of whom works at a effects company, I think, and and, a, and another one. And they talked about um, their experiences, um, both being mentored as young artists starting out in, uh, or young uh, uh, participants starting out in the industry, and then about their experiences mentoring other people. And then the, the sentiments that they shared and the stories they told, which were really beautiful and great uh, stories about how they sort of broke in and got to do the work that they're doing in the industry. It was echoed by uh, Vittoria Alonso at her keynote speech. Um, and about mentoring and I thought that that was a really cool thing that I hadn't really ever thought of but the the people who mentor you and the people um, who sort of help you kind of get going in industry and um, as as uh, at least all of us I think are sort of getting longer in the tooth uh, you know looking back and thinking about all the people that um, you know you wind up mentoring too and I think that that's one of the things about the visual effects industry um, that I've always really loved is that kind of um, shared collective experience and the way in which um, you know the people who teach you and show you how to do stuff and then sort of passing that stuff on and you know uh, I thought that was a really neat thing that came up at the conference this year something that was not technical but that was about people and about um, you know the industry writ large and how uh, important those things are in terms of they were talking about it in terms of increasing you know diversity and um, uh, getting more women and uh people of color and stuff into the industry, which of course I think is awesome. But just in general too, I think um, all that sentiment and those uh, ideas were, were really cool to talk about and think about. And um, I don't know, I just wanted to mention that that was probably one of yeah, my favorite would, things at the conference. I would this completely year. agree. And at uh, DigiPro, the entire conference uh, executive were women. Uh, for the first time, you know, just making a deliberate effort to try and be more inclusive, um, which actually is yeah, also cool. this idea of mentoring and teaching is a perfect segue for us to thank the other Matt, who is in fact uh, significantly um, centrally involved in teaching and, uh, and educating inside the uh, ILM uh, team. So I'm sure you totally, uh, Matt, agree with this, Matt Lennon. Yeah, totally, yeah. And it was in fact an old um, ILM that mentored me right back at the very beginning back at the early 90s that that really probably changed the direction that that my life was going in and got me into the industry so i have been mentored and and i think from that it's really given me a, a sense that passing on knowledge and and working alongside people to to teach them and and help them to teach others is such a, a worthy and and great thing to be able to do with your time yeah you're here well, thank you so much, guys, for being with us. Um, obviously, we've got the show notes and other stuff on FX Guide. Uh, we look forward to catching up again, probably with more of a live-action film. But, hey, maybe this was a live-action film after all. Who knows? Makuna um, Matata. Until next time, I'm Mike Simmel. Thanks so much, guys. See ya. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at vfx at fxguide.com. Copyright FX Guide, LLC.